What's up, church? Y'all good? Yes, man, y'all sounded so good in worship this morning. And man, uh, I love what God is doing. I'm, I'm gonna be honest with you, transparent. It's been kind of crazy over the last month since we introduced a uh, 845 service. As you can imagine, by this service, I kind of lose it a little bit. So, um, but I kind of, I kind of, uh, I don't know, get a little bit more flexible in my wording and different things. But I remit, um, forgot last week, I had a couple people ask me, because uh, I shared the illustration, not that it's important to anybody or really anybody cares, but people had asked, did your son win the basketball team last week? Because I forgot to mention it. And I mentioned it in the other two, and I just forgot they did win, all right, 30 to 20. So um, anyway, you're like, I don't care. And that's okay. I, I don't care either. So, uh, but anyway, uh, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to the book of Acts chapter four. Chapter four, um, if this is your first time here, we have been really navigating the book of Acts, this incredible account of the early church. It really is what we see uh, is that God uh, brought his son Jesus, and we see that through the gospels, his life, his ministry. And then in the book of Acts, it begins, the writer Luke um, shows that Jesus challenges the disciples, and then he ascends into heaven and it really is the birth of the church and the works of what God is doing and the spread of Christianity. And that's where we're going to pick up today as we're kind of walking through chapter by chapter, if you will. Um, before we dig in, just want to really reiterate what Matt was saying about getting to know you. Um, I want you to hear me say this. If, if you're fairly new and you're not a member, um, I completely understand how uh, intimidating and uh, overwhelming it can be to be a part of a church family, especially if you're new. To try to figure out what do they have to offer? There's three services. What are small groups? How do you serve? Is this the place? You know, whatever the case may be. I know there's a lot of different questions. It can be super overwhelming. That's why we created Getting to Know You. It is an incredible event that is super casual and informal. It's not a hey, come sit around a table with like four people and you're gonna be drilled on theology and you have to be, you're gonna be tested and have to answer all these questions. It literally is coffee and dessert with about, I don't know, anywhere between 70 to 90 people that are in the same boat you're in. And they come and they hear more about our church and get to hear about ways that they can start to serve or groups and diff different things like that. Plus there's childcare. Can I get an amen if you have kids? All right. And so just wanna encourage you, sign up, and there is no pressure. This is not like, and I feel like, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one in the room. Have you ever been like one of those timeshare things where you get a discounted rate on a nightly hotel and they're like, oh, you got to listen to this three hour presentation. You're like, I'll do it. And then you're like, this is horrible, <laughs> right? It's not like that, okay? So there is no pressure. Just um, would love for you to, to be a part of that and get connected and begin to participate in what God's doing here. But um, so this morning, we're gonna be in um, the end of chapter four. Now, if you've been on this journey with us, here's kind of where we left off. So the Spirit of God came, the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost earlier in Acts and empowered the disciples um, and really gave them a great boldness. And so they kind of leave, they're locked up in the upper room because they're afraid of their life. And they, what they end up doing is the Holy Spirit comes and they're like, hey, let's, let's break. Let's go out to the community. They go out to, to the community. Peter preaches a sermon and 3,000 people come to know Jesus. It's incredible. 
And so the, the early church is formed, it's birthed. We saw this a couple weeks ago. They were devoted to God's word, to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to fellowship with one another. They cared for each other. And, and, and everything like that. And they were just devoted to sacrificial generosity. Man, they gave. So not only were they hanging out, doing life together inside the walls of the church and inside the walls of their home, but they really were meeting other people's needs. If there was a need in the community uh, of believers, it's like, hey, you need some help? I'll help you with that. And so it was this great, great picture. And so last week, what we saw is they kind of broke this holy huddle and said, it's go time. And they went out to the community and Peter and John were on their way to the temple and outside the gate of the temple was a guy who every day um, was brought before the gate. He was paralyzed from birth and he was approximately 40 years old. And so he was brought to the gate where he would then beg for money and food and what scripture says are alms. So Peter and John are on their way to the temple and this guy's like, hey dudes, can I get some money? And they turn to him, they actually go down. You know they saw this guy all the time. But the Holy Spirit led them in this moment. So they get down and they say, hey, we don't have any gold or silver, but what we do have, we give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Get up and walk. And that dude gets up. It says he leaps and he begins to praise God. He runs to the temple and he's just worshiping God. Now let's be honest, especially in Baptist world, that's a little weird. Could you imagine if right now I was to come and I'm like, hey, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk, and they, and they walked, you would be amazed, I would be amazed. <laughs> and so they're doing this, and as you can imagine, the crowd is gathering thinking, what in the world, you know? They're like, was that the guy? That's him? Like he was, wasn't he paralyzed? How was he walking? So the crowd is gathering, and Peter preaches a second message, and as he's doing that, 5,000 people come to know him. At the tail end of his message, the uh, religious elite and the, the hierarchy of Jerusalem come and they arrest Peter and John. And it's nighttime, so they spend the night in jail. And the next day, they bring him before this council, and the council has had it. They're like, I don't know what to do. And so they say, you know, what gives you the right, pretty much, to do what you're doing and to say what you're saying? And the boldness that is on Peter and John is incredible. He looks at them and says, hey, Jesus, who you crucified, he did this. And you see this man right here? He's standing right next to us. He's walking. God raised him. And so we're gonna preach the resurrection. And they said, well, 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 okay. Um, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna let you go, but you, can, you need to stop talking about Jesus. You need to shut your mouth. And they said, what we have seen and heard, there's no way we're gonna stop talking about Jesus. I mean, how powerful is that? So they kind of slap him on the wrist. They let him go. And the way chapter four ends is that after that, they gather together with the disciples and they pray for more boldness. How crazy is that? They pray for more boldness. And then chapter four ends with where we're gonna pick up today, really reiterating the unity that they had that we saw in chapter two. So let's read this together. Chapter four, verses 32 through 37. And I'll add some commentary here and there. And um, just to let you know, 
all the points of the message are gonna be at the very end. And hopefully I'll probably rush through them because I've done that to the other two services, okay? So if you're OCD and you're like, where's the point? It's coming, all right? Just chill, all right? Don't throw anything at me, all right? So uh, verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common. So you get this picture once again, man, they're not selfish. They're sharing everything. They had everything in common. Now, I'm just gonna be frank. Now, this is a time in the history of the church like any other, because you and I both know that in 2023, churches all around the world are very diverse in their opinions, right? And so we're not common. We don't have everything in common. Now, at the time, what you see is they're sharing everything and they have everything in common and that's exclusive to them at this time, but it teaches us something. And here's what I've learned about church world is that there is great strength in diversity. And I'm thankful that our church as a whole and our, even our campus is very diverse. We, we don't need to look like all be the same and have all the same thoughts and processes and all these different things because there's strength in that diversification. Now, with that being said, as you can imagine, more so than the early church, because of all those opinions and diversity, we have other barriers that we need to cross to really be effective for the kingdom of God. You following me? They had everything in common. You and I don't. But if there's anything that we share with the early church that we should have in common, it is the work of Jesus. It is what he has done for your life and my life. And so that is the most important message that as a church and a body of believers that we proclaim to a lost and broken world. That, yeah, we might disagree on how to parent, preference of music, you know, big church, small church, whatever the case may be, fill in the blank. What we need to agree upon is Jesus is the only way of salvation. It's in scripture. There's no twisting it. There's no watering it down. There's no skirting around it. There's no bypass or cheat code or hack or anything. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. And so we proclaim that to a broken and lost world that is looking for other ways to get to heaven if they believe in heaven. And we have to be unified together in that. Because what ends up happening is if as a church, the message that the lost and broken world hears from the church louder than that message, it is, it's sideways energy. So if we're proclaiming greater than the gospel, who you should vote for, what you should do in this situation, whatever, what, fill in the blank of how you should be satisfied in your life other than Jesus, man, we have gone askew. And so that is the most important thing. And the early church were gathered together, devoted to the gospel in this way. And they were also sharing things. Now get this, to reiterate, verse 33, it says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of um, the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. So they're 
They're a walking testimony. As I said last week, they're telling anybody and everybody, let me tell you what I've seen, what I've heard, what I've experienced. This is what Jesus has done in my life. And they're sharing that. It's public knowledge. Once again, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and they brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, let me kind of clarify some things here, because... um, as the church is selling things, they're bringing the proceeds, the money, to the apostles' feet. Now, the apostles weren't driving Lamborghinis and have private jets, okay? You and I both know there are pastors that take advantage of this. And the apostles were taking the proceeds and dispersing it amongst the people that were needy. And, and so it wasn't about, hey, let's build a, big, a bigger building. Let me kind of pocket it so I can get a nicer car or anything. It was about serving the community with those things. And so they're collecting it together and they're saying, hey, this person has this need and this person has this need. Let's disperse it accordingly. And so they're, they're meeting those needs. And then it turns to a guy named Barnabas, really, Uh, His real name is Joseph, if that's not confusing. All right, verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. All right, so we have this example, and we're gonna get to this and kind of break this down in just a second. But what we see here and what we have been seeing is a beautiful picture of the church, what the church should be, how it should be behaving and acting and caring for one another. And and we get this great example of Barnabas. Now, what we're going to look at this morning, however, is really a look at what I would say, unfortunately, is a negative side of the church. And you might be like, there's a negative side? And this is my personal opinion. This is one of those things that because... We're imperfect people gathering together in an imperfect place, in an imperfect world that kind of creeps in. And I think it could really plague the church. And it is one of those characteristics that can bring hurt, church baggage, and definitely outsiders saying, I don't want to be a part of that. I'm not interested in that. And it's not a fancy term, but here's the characteristic, pretending. Pretending. It is really easy to fake it in, the, in church world. It's easy to show up on a Sunday, put your Sunday best, to, best on, look like you have it all together. You're, you're Mr. Spiritual, you know, and everything is going great. And the story that we're going to see is that is exactly what happened. And I definitely think this is more of an issue in the American church because we want to look like we have it all together. I heard this quote one time. I don't even know who said it, and I don't even know if I'm quoting it right, okay? But it'll be on the screens, and you'll get the premise of it. But it says this, our greatest desire is to be known, and our greatest fear is to be known. Now, here's what that means. You and I, we are designed by God to know him as he knows us. For us to have an intimate relationship with him. Now, because of sin and the brokenness of our world, 
we look at other relationships outside of God to meet that same need. And so we like to be known. We want people to like us, to care for us. It is innate in us that while you might not physically say, I wanna be the most popular guy at my school or be well-liked at my job, we want that. Even the most introverted person in the room wants a couple people in their life that care for them, right? It's a natural desire of our heart. That's why TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever, you name it, social media app that's out there is, have exploded because each of us like to be liked, we like to be followed, we like to be shared, we like all of those things. It just perpetuates this desire that is in us to be known. But at the same time, our greatest fear is to be known. We don't want people to know our dirtiest, darkest secrets. We don't want people to know how we're struggling, what we're struggling with. And it's really easy, not just at church, but just in life in general, to look like you have it all together, but deep down inside, you know, and you're falling apart. You don't want, to, you don't want people to know that you're in debt up to your eyeballs, that you really can't afford the house that you live in or the car that you drive. You, you, you don't want people to know that you're struggling as a parent and you feel like a failure. You don't want people to know that you're trying to kick an addiction. You don't want people to know that you're really struggling with this thought or this bitterness or this forgiveness or grieving a loss, a, a loss of a loved one. You don't want people to know that. And so on Sunday mornings or in life, when people are like, hey, how are you doing? Man, I'm doing so good. I had this guy, when I first became a Christian, I was 14, and uh, at the church that I was at, and this is going to sound horrible, but just hear my heart on this. There was a guy that worked at the church, and um, I was a student intern my senior year of high school, aka a do-boy, okay? And there was this guy that was on staff, and he was always super nice. He was never mean. I never saw anything sketchy or anything like that, but just his personality, I was like, are you being real right now? Because the way he talked, I was like, hey, his name, his name was Lindsay. I was like, hey, Lindsay, and he's like, hey, how's it going, brother? I'm so blessed. I'm blessed beyond measure. You know, I'm thinking, who talks like that, right? And then I'm like, oh, well, okay, well, you know, and he's like, how can I pray for you today, man? Today is just a great day. It's a day, it's a beautiful day to be in the house of the Lord, amen? And I'm like, oh my gosh, can we just have a normal conversation, you know? And I'm sure, like, it was real, but like, the thing is, it's like, it's okay to say, you know what, I'm really struggling today. And a lot of people that don't go to church don't come to church because they don't feel like it's okay to say those things. That's why there's like a persona of, I need to clean myself up before I go there. I gotta get my life right. I gotta stop doing this, stop doing that, and start doing this, and then I will come to church. Jesus says, come, come to me as you are. And so we have this, we wanna be known, but this fear of being truly known. Listen to what happens. Let's, let's pick up in chapter five. Chapter five. But a man, so we have Barnabas, all right? He sold his property and came, and I'm sure it was a lot of money because he lived on the island of Cyprus. He was an islander, okay? Yaman. Yeah, all right, chapter five. But a man named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, all right? They were millennials. That's why they have cool names like that, all right? They shop at Trader Joe's and are from California. Just kidding. I know some of y'all are from California. Y'all are like, oh, just that's a joke, Okay. But anyway, cool names. I like them. So they sold a piece of property, 
all right? And with his wife's knowledge. Now, guys, you know, you and I know that's permission, all right? He asked his wife's permission. And he kept back for himself some of the proceeds brought only and brought only a part of it and laid it to the apostles' feet. But Peter said, now I'm going to tell you this. I don't know how Peter knew this. So Ananias and Sapphira, this husband and wife team, they, you, hopefully you see this, what's going on. They sell some property, and instead of bringing all the proceeds to the feet of the disciples and the apostles, they kept some. But they were pretending to bring it all. So they show up, they're like, hey, we brought everything. And I don't know how Peter knew this. I don't know if he did some kind of real estate analysis and he knew what they sold it for. I don't know if they talk around town and they were like, we, I know, and that's not what you have. Or if it was just an inclination from the Holy Spirit that leaned in and impressed upon his heart. But Peter says this, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Can you imagine? That's got to be an awkward, tense moment right there. Could you imagine you show up at church today and we do our offering and, and I call you out by name and I'm like, hey, bro, I know you, you make more than that. I've seen your W-2. <laughs> You'd be like, okay, let's go to another church, <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't blame you. We don't do that. You know, I have no idea what you give or even if you give. Peter somehow knew, and he called Ananias out on it. And he said, hey, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? That is some hard truth in that. So he says that, why, did, uh, why has Satan filled your heart? Now, this is really contrast because what we've seen is that they're filled with the Spirit. Believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. And I, I believe Lucas pointing out, they weren't. They were filled with uh, Satan. And so... Um, so anyway, Peter continues, verse four, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have con contrived, in, um, contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. He essentially said, God knows. You and I know, God knows everything there is to know about you, good, bad, and ugly. There is no lying to God in the sense of he, you can't hide it from him. It's like, well, I can't pray that prayer because I don't want God to know that. He knows. He knows exactly what Ananias and Sapphira did. And Peter says with his boldness, you have not lied to man, but to God. Verse five, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. Yes, they did, as you can imagine. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. That was probably some of the youth workers. I'm just going to be honest. They, have, they always have those bad jobs, carrying dead bodies out. Um, but think about that. Peter calls him out, and God strikes him down. He dies. And that's tough. Now listen to what happens. Verse seven, after an interval of about three hours, they had to dig that hole, I guess, I'm not sure. His wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Can you imagine, ladies? So they separate you, 
Your husband's gone. She has no clue what has this taken place. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Tell me, is this how much you sold it for? She said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Now, let me just kind of say a side note right here for the married people in the room. I know scripture says that wives should submit to their husbands, okay? And that's a biblical approach, not one of like, you're gonna submit, not like that, right? But let me be very, very frank and clear about this, ladies. You should never follow your husband when it leads to sin. That's what Sapphira did. They were in this together. And it doesn't really say who initiated whatever, but they were in it together. And as a married couple, you should never replace the Holy Spirit with your spouse. That's dangerous. And Ananias said, okay, I'll go with him. And they were in it together. They were scheming and <laughs> premeditated, if you will. And so Peter said to her, why is it that you've agreed together to test the Spirit? And then he says, behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. Think about this. This is the first time I buried my husband. Say, what? Where is he? The people who buried your husband, they're right here. And then, and they will carry you out. Verse 10, immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of those things. Now you and I both know that next Sunday was the most generous, biggest <laughs> gift ever in the history of the church, wasn't it? You know they were bringing checks like, oh, we gotta look for some coins in the, in the couch. We gotta bring everything, you know? Now listen, there's a lot of questions and I don't have all the answers. Now, you might say, well, what in the world? God just struck them dead. Do I think God can do that? Absolutely. I've never heard of it happening, but I'm sure. God is all powerful. He can do what he wants. Now, do I think that if you don't go home today and put your house on the market and sell everything and bring it next Sunday, and if you don't do that, that he's gonna strike you down? No, I don't think that. And I don't think this is a message necessarily about tithing. It really is a message about authenticity and being real. It's about not being a fraud or a fake and looking like you have it all together. And so just in the last few minutes, that we have. I really want to paint a picture between Barnabas and, and Sapphira and Ananias, because what we see in Barnabas is a man who has been transformed by the gospel. And, it, and the gospel has gotten a hold of his heart in such a way that he bleeds the gospel message in a, and really in an act of service brings everything in this. And then you have Sapphira and Ananias who do not. Barnabas is a really important guy in the book of Acts. He shows up six different times. So we see him here. He's a lead giver of the church. He's, he sold his property and he came. Later in, um, in uh, Acts 9, there's this guy named Saul. He's a Christian killer. Jesus confronts him about it. His life is radically changed. He becomes Paul, one of the greatest missionaries and New Testament writers that we see. And after this encounter, 
He comes to the disciples. Now, remember, he probably still has blood on his hands. He comes to the disciples and says, hey, guys, I'm one of you guys now. And you can imagine the disciples are like, nah, no, you're not. You're here to kill us. Barnabas was the guy who embraced him, said, you're going to be with us. Then Barnabas actually um, is responsible for um, bringing diversification to the church of Antioch. They plant a church. He says, this isn't just for the Jews. This is for everybody. And he invites, um, uh, you know, the Gentiles in and other people to come in and be diversified in the church. He was at one point in Acts put in charge of the money because there was a great famine in Jerusalem. He dispersed it among the churches. He went with Paul on Paul's first missionary journey. We see that later in Acts. Then there was this guy named John Mark. And one of Paul's failures, in my opinion, is that John Mark, uh, he was disappointed in John Mark. And John Mark was like, hey, let's go on a missionary journey. And Paul was like, no, I'm done with you. And Barnabas said, he can come with me. I'll restore him. I'll mentor him. So Barnabas is this incredible, incredible guy. It's a picture of this. And so really quick, there's kind of really kind of two ways for us to live. One, we can live a life of hypocrisy or authenticity. We can be hypocritical or we can be authentic. Jesus addressed this in Matthew when he looked at the Pharisees and the scribes and he said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You are like whitewashed tombs. He says, you look all good and pretty on the outside, but inside you are full of dry bones and uncleanliness. He said, it's, a, it's about what's in the inside. And I really think that authenticity is rooted in commitment. And here's what I mean by this. Authenticity is rooted in commitment. When you're committed to something, you're more authentic. Think about it if you're married, all right? So me and my wife, we're, um, we're gonna celebrate 18 years of marriage at the end of April. And um, just to be real, in the first year of marriage, while we love each other and share everything, there's like this awkwardness a little bit where it's like, I remember it's like, you know, you're getting ready and the bathroom door is closed. Or it's like, I can't let him see me without makeup. Or, you know, like you're still doing stuff and it's a little bit, you're not as vulnerable. And it's different for everybody, but there comes a certain point in your marriage where you become super vulnerable. And now you use the bathroom with the door wide open, right? And it's no longer like, hey, sweetie, can you please get it? It's like, get it now. I need it, <laughs> right? And it's no longer about, I don't care what I look like. Now it's more of like, hey, you got a zit on your back. Can I pop that? You know, I mean, it's vulnerable. You know each other, but it's because you're committed. And I've seen marriages that when that authenticity and vulnerability dissipate from the marriage, it's usually because the commitment is weaning. And so I'm gonna kind of revert back to old ways because authenticity is rooted in commitment. And that's so true in the church. When you are committed to the mission of Jesus and to the church and to just saying, I'm gonna be real and I'm gonna be authentic. I'm not gonna be a hypocrite. It starts with a commitment. And I know that's hard to bring your stuff and confess, but this place right here is or should be a safe place that you should bring all of your brokenness. This is more of a hospital, right? I've heard it said, bring your junk. If we pretend like this is a perfect place, then people who are broken on the outside don't wanna come here. They're gonna go where, to where they feel welcome. And, and that's exactly what Barnabas is, and the early church was saying, hey, we're authentic. We're not gonna be hypocrites. 
We're gonna be authentic, real, transparent people. It's actually one of the values we have as a church is authenticity. The second thing, what we see here is you can either live a life of reluctance or surrender. Ananias and Sapphira were reluctant. They cared about their money and their reputation more than complete surrender. Barnabas said, I'm selling everything. It's surrender. Now let me tell you what this kind of really looks like on a practical way, especially in American church especially in the South, many people trust in Jesus as their savior, but not as their Lord. That's what I mean by this, or here's what I mean. They know I need Jesus. He died for my sins. He's the only way to heaven. I don't care if you grew up Lutheran, Catholic, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, whatever. Even if you didn't even grow up in church, a lot of times in the South, we at least know those basics. And we prayed some prayer at grandma's VBS that we went to. We had some Kool-Aid and those little sugar cookies, <laughs> you know. And that was it. But Jesus doesn't just want to be your savior. He wants to be your Lord. And, and being your Lord takes surrender. It takes saying, it's not about me. It's not about my plan. It's not about my wants. It's not about my desires. It is about you, God. So we gather together as a church and we worship because it's about him. It's about what he wants and what he wants to do in me and through me and what he's teaching. And Barnabas knew that. He trusted Jesus and the disciples and the Holy Spirit and how they were being led. And so you can live one of those lives. And then third, you can live a life that goes to death or a life of life. And you and I know, we don't, I don't need to tell you this, that the things of this world never truly provide life. They might for a little bit, they might satisfy for just a little bit, but then there's something else. I mean, I, I just think like every time I can, I feel like a new iPhone comes out like every three months. Do you feel like that? I don't know. But it's like, I get a new iPhone and I'm like, man, that's really, that's really nice. And then like the next one comes out, I'm like, oh, well, that one's nicer. I need that. I need that. <laughs> right? Same way with a car. You get a new car after a year or two, you're like, oh, it's old. I need, I need to trade that thing in. I need a new one. It doesn't satisfy. And the things of this world don't bring satisfaction and true life. God does. And when we surrender to him, that's where life is found. Oswald Chambers says this, and I'm, I am wrapping up, I promise. He says this, the remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. In a believer's life, we should have a healthy fear of God. It is a mix of an awe of God, of his supremacy and sovereignty, mixed with his great intimacy that we want to know him. That's how our lives should look. And as we go before him, fear, that healthy fear is a part of worship. Look how many times in this fear was there. Verse five, and great fear came upon all who heard. Verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole. And then as a result, and it's not on the screens, and I might get to this next week, in verse 14, it says, and more and more, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Why? Because they feared the Lord in a good, healthy manner. They chose life. So here's my invitation this morning. Are you choosing life? Are you choosing the, the life that this world gives? 
and the death that it leads to, or are you choosing life in Jesus that takes surrender? And as the band is going to come up and they're going to lead us in a closing song of uh, really of response, man, my prayer is that you would evaluate your life, examine your heart, and really say, what are some areas of my life that I need to surrender to God? All of us have things that we're holding on to. And it might be that you've never surrendered your life to him fully at all. You maybe prayed a prayer and you trusted him as savior, but you didn't, you didn't trust him as Lord. Let today be that day. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, what a convicting just passage. It's very humbling to think and to really examine our hearts and say, are we giving you everything? Or are we pretending? Are we putting on a facade or a mask to look like we have it all together? which is so easy to do? Or are we living a life of authenticity that one, acknowledges our weakness and our failures in front of you and are able to confess that and share that with others so that we can walk together and be real, not to pretend. And so Father, as we respond through song, let us just share our hearts with you but most importantly, surrender the things that we're holding on to with a tight grip that you want to restore, redeem, forgive, and point us to true life. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Hey, let's stand, church. Let's close. Let's respond to Jesus this morning. Feel free. I'm up here. If you need prayer, you can come forward and pray, or if you just want to talk, but let's respond to Jesus.